Dr. Mark Eckel and the Comenius Institute Warp and Woof Radio. And I love being around you, brother, but, you know, 35 degrees below uh, kind of leads us to have to do some technology advancements today, and I am just glad that we are still on air. So, Dr. Mark, take it away. It's your show, man. Oh, thanks so much, HB. It's great to be back, everybody. Warp and Woof Radio, RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. Thanks so much for joining us today or later on the podcast. Uh, our Cominius Institute is our sponsor. Cominius Institute crosses three bridges. We cross the bridge in the college at IUPUI, helping young Christian college students think Christianly about their subjects. We also cross the bridge in the communities, which is what we do every week through our radio show. Uh, finding folks around the community who are doing good and uh, emphasizing that, especially in the Christian community. And the third bridge that we cross is in culture. Uh, we are writing, speaking, teaching on all different kinds of things. Uh, and in this particular case today, we are glad to be able to encounter uh, this very important topic uh, concerning health uh, issues. And not just uh, simple health issues in terms of the physiology of health, but we're talking about the interconnection the interdisciplinary connection between the social sciences and the medical sciences. And we are bringing in a special guest here today from Indiana University down in Bloomington, Dr. Bernice Pescolito. Pescolito, uh, we're so glad that you're able to join us here this morning. Uh, thanks for your time today, uh, Dr. Pescolito. Oh, thank you, Mark, for having me. Well, we want to get right to the topic. And one of the things uh, especially taken by, as I read uh, not only about uh, your fantastic background and all of the accomplishments, uh, just for the sake of everybody online and uh, those who are hearing the podcast later on, uh, distinguished professor of sociology at Indiana University, director of the Indiana Consortium for Mental Health Services Research. Uh, you've done all kinds of uh, research in the past, but now uh, what you're really focused on is this interconnection between uh, the medical field and the sociology field and how that might uh, actually help people in and around Indiana. And I have to tell you, uh, Bernice, this morning that the thing that grabbed me especially as I was reading all of this wonderful information was this line, the goal is to find the right medicine for the right patient at the right time right here in Indiana. So again, thanks for joining us today. Uh, tell us about this precision medicine and the directions that you're taking with the grand challenges at IU. Absolutely, Mark. Really a path-breaking study that Indiana University is taking on because President McRobbie decided that we need to as a, as a series of scholars and people who assist policymakers and people in the community, we need to address critical problems. And there was a competition for this, and not surprisingly, uh, health came out on top, because as you know, our wonderful state doesn't rank very highly in terms of indicators, uh, in terms of life expectancy or infant mortality, and we want to improve that. So. The first grand challenge that Indiana University decided to take on was the issue of health. And the cutting edge of health right now is this question of precision health, that everybody, when they go to a doctor, when they think about their health, should be thinking about themselves and their uniqueness rather than how they're like everybody else. And, what was, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say that this 
you know, that this starts with the fact that everybody has a unique genetic inheritance. And that's very interesting. And we found now for about 10% of diseases, we've known for a very long time that there's a, genet uh, a direct genetic connection. But the problem is most of us suffer from the other 90% of diseases, and they're very, very complex. And the complexity reaches past your genes to your environment, whether that's your physical environment, your chemical environment, your spiritual environment, your economic environment, that those things, where you live, your culture, they can turn those genes on and off depending upon the kinds of experiences that you have and the kind of conditions that you're exposed to. This is uh, fantastic, and, and, you know, quite frankly, I am scribbling notes as fast as I possibly can on this side of, uh, on this side of our phone conversation. Uh, this is really fantastic stuff. One of the things that I, I think is lost in our culture generally is that uh, we have forgotten that while, yes, we are uh, unique individuals, that there's a holistic element to this and that we ought to see the interconnectivity between different disciplines that may be beneficial to people that would then come back to the issue of their uniqueness and individuality. Perhaps for a moment you could speak to that particular issue, the necessity of seeing the wholeness of disciplines coming together so as to help individuals in their time of need. Absolutely. I think that we've come to a point in um, trying to improve health that we understand that there are tremendous scientific advances that medicine is making, and yet the context in which that medicine is delivered becomes very important. And even before that, whether or not people get sick really depends on things that are sometimes outside of the doctor's office. And so we need to bring in the psychologists and the economists and, you know, the chemical toxicologists to try to understand how, where you were born, where you live, the conditions that you are exposed to, how all of those things affect your body and your mind, and that they affect not only whether or not you stay healthy or get sick, but they can also affect whether or not you get well after treatment. Let me give you a, a little example of this and a place where I think medicine is coming around to the fact that we need to understand the social as well as the genetic and the clinical and the medical. If you take a woman who just delivered a baby, you know, I remember when I had my son, I was offered a four-hour option to go home which was a little shocking to me. But fortunately, um, I had people to go home to. What if you have a situation in which a woman doesn't have a support system around her, doesn't have a church, doesn't have a neighborhood, doesn't have a group of friends who can help her, not only with the baby, but help her see whether or not the baby is doing well or not doing well if she's a first-time mother. So we need to know in a very sort of basic way what is going on with that woman in her life in terms of the health of herself and her baby. And so this can, this can get very complicated when we start talking about things like cancer or mental illness, that the kinds of things that matter 
um, can be dealt with in the physician's office and in the operating theater, but often brings people to the doctor's office because of their life experiences and their outcomes after treatment will be affected by their life experiences and the conditions in which they live. Mm. My, this is just so good. The, the concepts that are popping off in this discussion are tremendously valuable for so many people. Uh, just a few general uh, side notes and comments along the way. One of the uh, people, one of the readings, uh, people that I've been reading over the years, Atul Gawande, uh, comes immediately to mind yeah. here in his, his book, Complications, for instance. Um, when you mentioned the word complicated, that's, his name was the first name that popped into my mind. Um, but something else that really uh, connects here, and this actually connects to what HB and I do every single week on the show, you use the phrase context delivered, and I want to connect that to the communication of community. So uh, HB's tagline for everything that he does is all community all the time, and his view is that his uh, concern and our concern every week actually is to deliver information in our context in a way that gets people to uh, help and that help might come in different forms it might come about different subjects or whatever the case might be so let's talk for a moment though we can go in so many different directions here let's just talk for a moment about the necessity of communication in the precision health uh, area that you're invested in talk to us a bit about how do you deliver this in your context through communication, what venues are you utilizing? Well, let me start with one that I'm not personally utilizing, but that people I think in the community should know about, which is that one part of this, since, since medicine has become very genetically oriented, that one of the things that the IU School of Medicine is doing is really uh, beefing up their genetic counseling so that they can explain to people what this is all about in language that they can understand. So I think that's really critical because some people are afraid of the idea of genetics and that, you know, this is some kind of, 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 of plan that people are going to start playing with genetics. And we had that recent case in China where a physician actually changed uh, twins' genetics in the womb. And, of course, that person really passed the bounds of ethics and was fired uh, uh, by his university for doing that. So, so there is an aspect of fear that we need to get over um, with people in the community. And IU School of Medicine is really trying to find and train people from the community who can be those genetic counselors for people who come into the doctor's office and find that there's some genetic connection to what they're dealing with. But let me tell you how we're, dealing, we're, we're adding to that, because there's the medicine side. But the social side is that uh, we're trying to attack a number of specific diseases that really are plaguing our state. We are looking at the issue of Alzheimer's. We're looking at um, cancers. We're looking at mental health. We're looking at the opioid addiction. And... We're putting together a lot of information from a lot of sources. And so some of that is genetic, right? Um, and some of it is about what's in the health record and the experiences they've had there. 
But what we as social scientists uniquely bring to the table is the voice of the people. And so what we're doing is we're doing a study called the Person-to-Person Health Interview Study to talk to somewhere between two and 3,000 individuals in the state of Indiana to find out about the community conditions that they think are important, that they think can be used to improve their health, and that policymakers and doctors should know about. So we, we go to people's houses and we talk to them and we measure things that are social. We measure their connection to their community. We measure their connection to their workplace. We talk about, you know, what they think the problems are that they face and what should be done about it. So it's a combination of getting their perspective first. That's the first thing we do. And then we do a series of measurements. And they're usually asking people questions, you know, like their workplace and, you know, what kind of resources they have around them, what kinds of social networks do they have that they can depend on. Um, And then we will connect that to the genetic data, to the health record data, to census data about their community, and we will have for the first time a really holistic view of these two to 3,000 people in Indiana that will help us really improve health and health care, and scientists will be using this for the next decades to come because it will be such a unique data source. This is just a, a phenomenal uh, process that you're engaged with. And just uh, very quickly, if you could give a quick response to this question. So uh, for everybody listening, uh, you're talking specifically about your end of things in a, as a social science uh, person doing the qualitative analysis, that is, the person-to-person versus uh, the quantitative, the numerical analysis that medicine might do, but you're not seeing them as distinctive. You're bringing them together in the, in the end of all of this. Absolutely. Not only are we bringing our data to the uh, genetic data, to the geneticist to connect to it, because w- let me give you an example. One thing, you know, we really worry about the CDC report that suicide has increased in the United States for the first time in 30 or 40 years. We want to get underneath that. And one hypothesis, not the only hypothesis, but one hypothesis is that people who suffer from depression are at greater risk for thinking about uh, ending their life or having their life taken by suicide. And so uh, what our job is, is to, you know, think about what are those conditions that cause them to be more likely to think about suicide as an option. Well, the medical hypothesis is having clinical depression. And we know that there's an increased risk for people with clinical depression. But now there's new research that suggests that not everybody travels that pathway if they are depressed um, or travels or not all suicides are a result of having depression. And so many people have depression and very few take their own life or are taken, their lives are taken by their depression. So we have to find out what's another pathway 
that ends up with people thinking about this as an option or solution um, to their life problems. And we've been thinking about issues having to do with how they feel about their belongingness in the community, uh, their isolation in the community, thinking about um, their feelings of success or failure. And those things are places where we can intervene as uh, you know, people who are trained as counselors can intervene when people feel that way about their life. Um, so there's an interaction between your genetic inheritance, which might predispose you to thinking about suicide, but there's also a social component that may do that that has to do with your experiences in the community. So this there are two ways to help people avoid that. One is... If they travel the pathway of depression to get treatment, there are good available treatments for depression. The other is to have them rethink their notions or change their isolation, their feelings of belongingness, create community programs where they can get back into the community. So we have those two things always working together, the genetic inheritance, which might you know, a person suffers a crisis, they have to have a certain genetic inheritance, we think now, or the geneticists think now, that that may trigger a depression. But for other people, it won't. And so we need to have two different ways to deal with people who are facing crises in the community. For our audience this morning, uh, we are talking about very, uh, very precise health concerns, and we're very pleased uh, today to uh, have somebody with us that actually understands this process and uh, is communicating it in a way that the rest of us can understand. Uh, Dr. Bernice Pescasolito is here with us from Indiana University in Bloomington. And uh, we are talking about uh, health concerns as it relates to not just the genetics of our person, but also the environmental social factors as well. For those of you who are listening, who are uh, in churches, uh, Christians uh, around the country, perhaps even around the world, uh, you are uh, engaged in processes and with uh, individuals who uh, may have already uh, considered these kinds of situations as Dr. Pescasolito has just suggested about depression and suicide, was just noting this on social media. A pastor in California, for instance, just took his life this week who had been fighting this all along. Uh, these are very important topics. We're going to be taking a one-song break here. Uh, cool jazz HB is going to spin for us. And when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion about the connection between our personal genetics and social interactions. You're listening to Warp and Woof Radio, RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. We'll be right back. And we are back, Warp and Woof Radio, RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. We come to you every Wednesday from 11 to noon, and we are always connecting folks in and around the Indianapolis community with each other, uh, specifically Christians who are doing good based on Titus 3, 1, 8, and 14, to do good, do good, do good. This is how the church and the Christian community in, in general uh, can benefit not only the church itself, but uh, people in and around the community uh, that uh, are in need of the kinds of things that uh, the church can actually bring uh, to the table. And this morning, uh, we are 
uh, privileged to uh, have with us Dr. Bernice Pescalis-Salito from Indiana University Health, and we are grateful for her interaction with us here today. She's been talking with us in our first segment about her good work in social science research as it relates to helping people connect between the genetics of medical science and the social science needs of environment and culture. Uh, Dr. Pescosolito, perhaps in the second segment, we could begin as we uh, talk further about this. Your particular needs that you have in terms of research, uh, the kinds of research that you're doing, and perhaps the ways in which uh, you can help or uh, people can actually help you with the research process. Well, the people are key, Mark. So let me tell you a little bit about how the person-to-person, or what you like to call it, the P2P health interview study works. And that is, in order, if we can talk to two to 3,000 people in the state of Indiana, we can actually scientifically provide information that represents the entire state. Now, the way that we can do that is that we have to do research that's different than medical research. We don't take volunteers. We work with the University of Chicago, who is one of the national centers of providing scientists with a list of households in their area of concern that if they talk to people in these households, even though they're only talking to two to 3,000 people, they can tell you what is going on in the state of Indiana as a whole. It's sort of our little scientific miracle called sampling theory. And so the University of Chicago has given us a list of 2,000 to 3,000 households that will be sent a letter. We're moving geographically through the state. So first we're right in the center. Uh, of, you know, Marion County, Hamilton County, right around the center of Indiana, because, of course, that's where the most population is and most of our cases, or many of our cases, will come from. And so they will get a letter from Indiana University saying that they have been selected, their household has been selected as a participant in this study. Um, I know that right now people are concerned. We live in a bit of a culture of fear right now. I've been doing this kind of research for over 35 years, and I know it's much harder to do this now than it used to be because people would open their doors. So we've tried to develop a process where people can feel safe that it really is Indiana University, and we do that in three steps. The first is that they get a letter explaining this. And the second thing is there's a phone number they can call. And the third thing is that our interviewers are all identified by a vest that they wear, that they're part of this study, and they all have official credentials that people should ask for. Now, the interesting thing about this is that if people don't want people in their houses, I can understand that. So if they get a letter of participation and if they call that number, we will meet them wherever they'd like to be met to do the interview. So a public library or someplace else that they feel comfortable to do the interview. Now, we don't know exactly who in that household we're going to select until they contact us. So what I like about this is, like, we're not after certain people. You know, we're not hunting down people. We're selecting households that represent the state. And then once a household agrees to participate, 
Then there's another scientific process that helps us determine which person in that household we want to talk to, who's over 18, of course, because we, you know, are not, this is not a child study. There is part of the, part of the Precision Health Initiative is targeting pediatric cancer, but that's not this part. This is a fantastic process that you're going through, and specifically to represent the state by geography and then by household uh, really is beneficial, I think, to everybody. As, as researchers, you know, we think about these things in the broad uh, spectrum of things, but you're very concerned about how people will, will respond individually to this, and that's really, uh, really kind of settling, I would hope, for folks that might be hearing this. Uh, in fact, I would say to everybody that's listening later on in the podcast as well that uh, you can come to us anytime and say, hey, is this, uh, is this the kind of thing that uh, we should be invested in? And uh, we, should, we will certainly give uh, uh, all kinds of positive indications about this process. Let's, take, uh, the, let's go back to the connection now with uh, genetics and with medicine. And one of the things that uh, also struck me in the first segment as we were discussing this was this fantastic example that you gave of uh, a pregnant woman who uh, has, uh, has or has not no support system to go home to and the complications that may arise in the social setting that they might be in. Let's take that, that microcosm of an idea uh, a person who has just given birth and talk about the necessities of what they might need within their social setting uh, from your perspective that might be very beneficial and helpful to them. Well, I think there are a couple of things, Mark. One is that they need to be provided with information about how to do follow-up with that baby. And now we are in the process of training uh, people in OBGYN clinics about mental health issues. And so one of the things that uh, if people are provided, if women are provided with information about what, where to go, that not only affects the health of the baby, you know, is the baby gaining weight, the vaccinations are absolutely, absolutely critical, uh, but also, you know, is the mother adjusting well? Is she having any signs of postpartum depression? Because traditionally, OBGYNs and their staff are not trained in mental health issues. But we now know this is a very, very important for mothers. And so there is research going on down here at on the Bloomington campus where we are really looking to training, understanding and training the mental health needs of mothers. And hopefully, you know, back in the day, be the family who would notice, well, she's not leaving her room or, you know, things are not going as we expect. And if a woman doesn't have a support system, and who's going to do that watching? Well, we're trying to figure out how to provide resources in the community that can fill those gaps. Mm. This is fantastic uh, connections, and I'm already thinking about uh, church connections here in Indianapolis that uh, certainly help provide for this. One of them is uh, our friends down at Neighborhood Fellowship down on 10th Street in Indianapolis and our friend uh, Pastor Jim Streelmeyer down there. They actually have uh, one of the largest health clinics, the free health clinics, uh, anywhere, I think, in the nation uh, that uh, has connections to not only folks like yourself at IU, but IUPY, Purdue, uh, Indiana University, all different kinds of university settings yes. are invested in this. And you probably already know about that uh, that clinic. 
Absolutely, because one of the things that we know, and excuse me, one of the places that the National Institutes of Health have gone is to fund research on faith-based interventions. In other words, we try to get it every corner of the community. And if one corner of the community are people whose major connection is to churches, then we have to provide resources to those places to help them do their work. And so faith-based initiatives are now part of the medical scene in terms of this. And, you know, I think churches could be a big help in letting people know this is okay. And, Mark, if people called you, I would ask you to call us to make sure, you know, that this is really somebody from our team. Um, if they're concerned, uh, they, they may be picking something up, and I'd like to do a double check on that. So let's make sure that we can make people feel 100% secure about providing this information. And I think that's another thing that people are concerned about, which are issues of privacy and confidentiality. The reason that we do this in the home is because for most people, that does provide the most secure place for them to talk about private issues. But for other people, it may not be. Um, they might not have, you know, appropriate space where there would be privacy, or there just may be a lot of people in their household, and they want to be able to say what they want to be able to say about their own health. Um, and that's why we have this alternative that we can meet them where they live. We can meet them where they want to be met. But the, the household we do for reasons of privacy and confidentiality, but the whole, the whole study has been through very serious and very systematic human subjects approvals so that we know that what we're doing does not injure people in any way, whether physically or uh, mentally or emotionally. Those of us who have been invested in um, social science research uh, fully know and understand and appreciate uh, and want desperately to make sure that it is manifest that, that ethics processes are followed. Uh, this is something that's really crucial to all of us and is inviting to people to know, hey, this is a safe space and a safe place. For those uh, who, uh, again, from our audience uh, might be listening, you hear us talk about the kinds of concepts such as common grace all the time that that God has invested his world with uh, the common grace of whether it be uh, the sun and the rain, uh, much less in agriculture, to uh, the great opportunities that we have uh, to invest ourselves in the medical field as well as in social science fields where the goodness of uh, what we would consider to be true truth can be manifest. And uh, right now we are having this great opportunity to have this conversation uh, with someone who actually is on the front lines of this kind of process. I wanted to go back to uh, your grand challenges uh, perspective here. We've talked a little bit about the Precision Health Initiative uh, that you've suggested and the process uh, that you have engaged with here. And by the way, if anybody's interested in checking this out, you can go to grandchallenges.iu.edu and find these things out. Uh, look up Precision Health there. That's grandchallenges.idu.edu. You have uh, some tremendous people on your team 
uh, Dr. Pescasolito, perhaps you could uh, say a word about the folks that are invested on the science side of things, on the medical science side of things, as you are on the social science side. We work with a number of people from all different kinds of disciplines uh, who are, you know, interested in health and in the relationship uh, between health and community. And so, you know, one of our components in this, and my history of research primarily is in the area of mental health and addictions, and we do know that there's an opioid crisis in the United States. So one of the, two of the people, actually, that we work with are experts in this. One is a psychiatrist up at Riley Children's Hospital named Leslie Holbershorn, who uh, really is an expert in understanding the problems of uh, teenagers who have issues with substance abuse, with mental health, those kinds of things. And another uh, sociologist, Bria Perry, who now is working on the center of the opioid addiction in trying to understand, you know, how people are getting addicted and how the different organizations around, you know, this is not just about motivation, you know, how different organizations are implicated in unintentionally, you know, having this opioid crisis um, unfold in Indiana. You know, we all know the story, or many of us know the story of Scott County, where, you know, uh, there has been, there's been an increase in HIV because of the opioid epidemic. So these things are complicated, as we started out talking about, that, you know, it turns out that the opioid addiction produced in one county just a, 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 a spike in cases in HIV, and we know that that was an epidemic that we thought was under control, but we now know that, you know, without watching, without having a sense of what people are doing, that that can come back in a way that is just devastating. And that's also true for the issue of vaccination. And, you know, I'm a, a person who comes from a family who's... Um, brother, my older brother, who I never met, actually died from uh, too many vaccinations on the same day. But that was back in the 40s where they didn't know how to do the vaccination schedule. The risk that we run in society now is that we are going to have measles outbreaks and hopefully not the return of smallpox in the United States unless uh, you know, people follow those vaccination schedules and we keep up what people refer to as our herd immunity to those really devastating infectious and parasitic diseases which ravaged our nation before the advent of vaccination. So mm -hmm. it's a very complex system. The issue of history, the issue of complexity, and the issue of ethnicity. I, I wondered if uh, you might speak to that particular issue. I know that uh, HB is going to be uh, very helpful in this uh, regard as it relates to uh, community communication. Uh, I wonder if you might speak to the issue of the necessity of uh, being communicative with ethnicity, uh, different ethnicities and different social groups and the needs that you have in that arena alone to communicate with people. I think that's so important, Mark, because we know that 
people who are in different ethnic groups have different risks for diseases. And we know that they have different cultures, which medicine doesn't always necessarily understand, but that social scientists have spent over 100 years trying to understand the different kinds of beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors, as well as opportunities and constraints that people from different ethnic backgrounds have. And so um, people, you know, in our major ethnic groups in the United States right, right now, when we're talking about African Americans and Hispanics, they're at greater risk for many diseases than white Americans. And we are concerned that they are worried that this is one more medical experiment that might be bad for them. Certainly the black community has a history of understanding the really devastating consequences of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which was just unethical, a time before there were guidelines and protections for people in scientific studies. So, um, you know, we worry about whether or not um, our community members from different ethnic communities will participate um, in the person-to-person health interview study. But there's a greater need for them to speak to us so that we can change uh, medicine and we can change communities to make them more open and inviting to thinking about their health and to thinking about how they can make things better for groups that are at more risk. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Bernice Pescasolito from Indiana University in Bloomington. We're discussing the issues uh, that relate to a connection between uh, genetics, our physical, medical histories as individuals, as well as the social science connections in terms of environment and culture and ethnicity that might uh, invest themselves in us as individuals and the needs that we all have in this regard. Uh, I wanted to speak uh, personally to uh, pastors in and around Indianapolis and Indiana specifically, but everybody, and, uh, and we include uh, those around the world because we actually have listeners since this is Internet radio around the world. Uh, so for everyone, uh, I just want to say to all pastors and spiritual leaders, the necessity of these kinds of studies and the kinds of help that can be given uh, by folks uh, such as Dr. Pescasolito, as well as many others in the medical field, is tremendously advantageous for everyone and uh, should not be viewed in any negative light as, as it relates to uh, past experience as all might have, albeit we understand that these difficulties have preceded us in history. But we want to suggest that, that uh, perhaps there are new opportunities and uh, new ways in which we can invest ourselves in the community to do good for people uh, in and around Indianapolis and Indiana as well as the world. Uh, Dr. Pescasolito, we have just a few moments left here in our program, and we want to make sure that uh, you have an opportunity to give us uh, just an overview of the things that you want to make sure everybody leaves this broadcast with here today. And then, uh, obviously, any kind of connection uh, commitments that they might be able to make in terms of websites or people or any kind of uh, uh, personal connections that uh, you might have in and around the community. I'll just give you a few minutes here to uh, make those connections uh, to the voices uh, that you might want to give to folks. 
Thank you, Mark. Because one of the things that I, I, I want to say is that don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to call those numbers. Don't be afraid to challenge us because a study that is well done and ethical has nothing to hide. And we're happy to answer any questions about the study and about its goals and what will happen if we come to your house if you received a letter. And, you know, we're there for the community. I also wanted to say that there are studies like this going on around the country and around the world because we now know that we need to understand all these complex layers of what affects people's health. But the unique thing about what we're doing in the Precision Health Initiative in Indiana is we're doing this person-to-person component. Most other studies are connecting these large existing databases, which are really important. But it's expensive, it's difficult to go out into the community and find the people to talk to who, when they provide their information, will represent the state of Indiana. But I'm firmly, firmly convinced that without that voice of the people, we are really not doing as much as we could to understand and break the back of these diseases and improve the health of our communities. This is fantastic information, and uh, this is uh, something that certainly will be helpful, not just in our present context, but obviously in years to come. So the kinds of research that you're doing, uh, just uh, say a word or two about this, the kinds of research that you're doing will have benefit beyond the present time, but into the decades to come. Absolutely, because one of the things that happens is if we have this very unique data set that the, the scientists of today can use it with our tools and our insights and our theories. But another generation comes after us with new ideas and, and new suggestions of how to take that data and, and look at it, turn it this way and that way and look at it up and down and see something that we didn't see. And so the advantage and the, the, the promise of this data set um, and this project that uh, President McRobbie and the IU School of Medicine and its partners around the state um, are doing will have an impact for generations to come. It's in some ways as important as the Framingham Heart Study was in the 1950s that gave us so much information about issues of heart health. This is sort of the new version of that that gives us a more complicated look because we're at a more advanced place in science. One of the things that we know for sure, everyone, is that um, if we plant a tree today, that we are really planting it for generations to come to provide fruit and shade and all of the goodness that it might provide uh, into the years to come. Because as a fledgling, uh, this tree is something that um, is very small, but in, in years to come will grow large. And certainly this is true uh, for this particular study that Dr. Pesca Salito and her colleagues are doing at IU uh, School of Medicine. We're grateful, Dr. Pesca Salito, for your time today. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you, Mark. I'm really happy to have this opportunity. This is a great opportunity for those of you to uh, 
press the buttons for our podcasts in the future. For those of you who are listening now, you might want to tell friends and colleagues about the opportunities to hear this particular interview uh, in the future. We'll get those streams out as quickly as we can. Uh, we'll make them available to, to everyone uh, here uh, in and around Indianapolis as well as around the world through uh, the wonders of Internet technology. H.B. Uh, Bell is going to be uh, helping Dr. Pesca Salito and her, and her connections to community uh, in and around Indianapolis and around Indiana and the opportunities that uh, avail ourselves now that we have uh, today in these kinds of formats and communication formats is just wonderful. You've been listening to Warp and Move radio radio next.tv at the cool groove site we come to you every wednesday from 11 till noon next wednesday we have a great opportunity to hear from jenny stam who is going to be joining us modern woodman she's going to be talking with us about the necessities of planning for our futures in a different kind of way as it relates to uh, not just insurance uh, processes but also uh, the benefits of putting monies away for future generations. We're looking forward to that uh, program next week, but so gl glad to have had this opportunity this week. Uh, we'll look forward to next week and every week, uh, Wednesday that we come to you from 11 until noon. Uh, HB takes over with some cool jazz. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll see you next week. <laughs>